everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today's guest is Ian Stone of the San Francisco Bay Area. For today's episode, Ian chose to talk about the version of 2001 Into Cities from Fish's show on November 26, 1997 at the Hartford Civic Center in Hartford, Connecticut. As you'll soon hear, Ian and I first got in touch about a year ago when I put out a call on social media for anyone who had memories of an old head shop on Long Island called Prime Cuts. Ian reached out almost immediately telling about his memories and thoughts of the cherished store that is no longer in business. Since then, Ian has become a fan of attendance bias and subsequently reached out to come on an episode. Once Ian told me that his first show was at Jones Beach in 1994, combined with the fact that he had memories of Prime Cuts, I knew that we would have a lot in common and a lot to discuss, because I correctly assumed that he's originally from Long Island. But looking back to the music, everyone has their own thoughts and opinions about the fall 1997 Fish Destroys America tour. And the segment that Ian chose from the Hartford show, 2001 Into Cities, encapsulates so much of what is great about that tour. Our conversation about just two songs ended up lasting for about an hour. I mean, that's the magic of Fish in 1997. So let's join Ian to talk about mail-order ethics, birthday shows, and what does or does not count as a super bad tease as we discuss Fish's performance of 2001 Into Cities at the Hartford Civic Center on November 26, 1997. Ian, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great. How are you doing? We're doing very well. Happy Friday to you. And uh, I'm excited to talk to you because you and I got in touch a number of months ago before you even volunteered to come on the show, maybe even a year ago at this point when I did my interview slash nostalgia trip about the old head shop in Rockville Center, Long Island called Prime Cuts. And I put out pretty much a call to anyone on Twitter to say, does anyone have memories of this head shop Prime Cuts? And you got back to me right away. I said, all right, this guy gets it. Yeah, and then recently have- you, you reached out to me to talk about today's segment, 2001 into cities at uh, in Hartford from November 26, 1997. So let's get into it. I'm really excited. So I assumed you grew up on Long Island, right? Yeah, I grew up on Long Island in Roslyn on the North Shore. And yeah, I, I, I think that call to to request for uh, info on Prime Cuts was was really, you know, a catalyst to, to getting me more into your show. And I, I'd, I'd heard about it and I think maybe heard one or two here or there. But, you know, since then, I've, I've listened to, I think, almost every episode but yeah, grew up on Long Island, you know, Madison Square Garden and Nassau Coliseum were really my my two main venues seeing fish early on. You know, MSG was further, but it was actually easier because it was just a train ride into Manhattan and you're there as opposed to, you know, Nassau Coliseum, you got to sort of get dropped off or get a ride with someone. It's not really in a public transit kind of a spot no yeah. most of long island is not long island yeah. is very much a car based region where if you are in a place for public transport you're not in the right location yeah exactly and i can't wait to hear more about you your background and we get to talk about fall 97 today so that makes the day automatically better and then specifically 2001 into cities from a much heralded show, November 26, 97. Before we get to that, though, let's hear about you and your background as a fan with the Attendance Bias Lightning Round. Attendance Bias Lightning Round. So, Ian, when was your first fish show? <laughs> so, my first show was at Jones Beach in July of 94. You know, at the time, I, I had seen The Grateful Dead a few times. My dad actually took me to see The Dead when I was 12. Uh, at Nassau Coliseum. And uh, a friend of mine in high school uh, who I went to see a, a couple dead shows with was like, you got to check out Fish. And, you know, I'd, I'd heard uh, a couple of the tunes on the radio, particularly Down With Disease. I remembered from WDRE. I don't know if you remember that station. I don't uh, remember DRE, no. 92.3 WDRE. Oh, so that's before uh, K-Rock. Yeah. 
And yeah. so was that the show where they played Setting Sail? Do you remember at Jones Beach? I don't think it was. All right, I'll check that because I remember when speaking of prime cuts, I had ne- I was never able to find Jones Beach tapes because they only played Jones Beach a small amount of times before coming back in 3.0. I think the last time they played there was in 95. And so it was tough to track down some of those tapes for me. So when I saw at Prime Cuts, they had the tapes from Jones Beach. They were the worst quality ever. But I'm like, I got to get these hometown favoritism. I got to hear what it was like to see fish at Jones Beach. And then when they announced in 2009, when they came back that early summer tour and they played in June, like, oh, my God, I thought this is something I would never get to do. I never thought (laughs) I'd get to see Jones Beach, to see fish at Jones Beach. So that was a real pleasure. Uh, You don't live in New York anymore, though. When did you when did you leave? Um, So I left New York when I finished college uh, back in 2001, uh, serendipitously, I guess, with with today's topic of 2001. That's true. You know, that was the year I moved to the West Coast from New York. I finished college and I moved to the L.A. area where I lived for for, uh, almost a decade before I moved up to the Bay Area. You know, I've been in the Bay Area ever since. And I did look up just while we were chatting, the the Jones Beach set list. And you're right, it did, they did play Setting Sail. All right. Um, the thing that I remembered from that show that really stood out was there was a big Greenpeace banner on the top of the, the, the you know, the, the stadium, not the stadium, but the, the covered stage. And they, the band announced that this was the first ever solar-powered fish concert. And I was like, oh, that's cool. These guys are progressive. That's interesting. And, you know, like I said, Down With Disease was the the song I knew from the radio. This is like really hoping to hear that. They didn't play it, but they did play Avinu Malkainu. Oh, that's fun. You know, so I'm Jewish. I grew up, I went to Hebrew school when I was younger. And so that was always something that kind of kind of stuck for me. Yeah. So well, sure. I mean, when I was listening to Hoist, when I was first getting into fish a number of years after you, and I would listen to Hoist at the end of Demand, I think it is on the album, and they have a recording of Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. That's know, what it is. Sorry. That's the song they played at uh, Jones Beach. No, oh, okay. That's even yeah. better if you're in it for the rarity standpoint, because that's even cooler. And yeah. I would show it. I remember playing it for my aunt, who was like, the most Jewish person in our family. My name's name's Weinstein. So it's like right there on the surface. And she was like, oh my God, who is this? And like, she was that close (laughs) to becoming a fish head. Didn't happen, but it's, there is that weaving into it culturally of being able to hear something like that uh, from your favorite band. So I definitely feel you on that. Yeah, just just hearing them play like a, you know, a, a Jewish prayer was like, wow, okay, this is pretty cool. You know, I, I can't say that there were any, you know, major like jams or standout moments that I really remember because, you know, honestly, I was I was just getting into it at that point. Sure. I think most people feel that way about their first show unless they're so prepped for it, which is easier nowadays than it was back then, you know, to read up on what it's like to go to a fish show, to be in so close contact with people around you, like whether it's a Facebook group or Twitter Back then, it was like, who do you know? Who in high school? What? Who are your older brother's friends? Who got <laughs> you into fish? What do they say it's like? I was, I was the older brother, so I didn't have a, I didn't have an older sibling. <laughs> but yeah, I understand that. My first show, I remember like bits and pieces, but I couldn't tell you much about outside of that. My most of my memories are from listening to my first show and actually being there. Uh, but first shows were all the way back there. What's your most recent show, and what did you think? Uh, well, my most recent show was the most recent show that mostly everyone else's recent show is, is also the most recent show they played. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was April 23rd at Madison Square Garden. And I mean, I was blown away by the whole run. I've have a long history with MSG, probably most of my just about 300 shows are at the Garden you know, probably somewhere around 60 or I don't, I don't know how many I've seen there, but a lot. <laughs> so it was really nice to get back there and be in New York City for a few days. I thought the playing was just stellar. 
I had tickets for the original New Year's shows and then we couldn't go because uh, I had a, a family member was having surgery. So we sold those tickets and then it was rescheduled. And it was like, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't ask those people to sell me back the tickets. You know? Of course. So yeah. It was like starting from scratch. I did like, tra- I was trading posters. I was like wheeling and dealing. I did all this stuff and you know, I wound up with great floor tickets and, and lower level tickets all four nights. And, you know, I, I really loved the Saturday night show but I think my favorite of the run was the 21st slight bias there because I was front row and it was my first time ever being in, in the front row, seeing the band, um, you know, that many times over 30 years. So it was, it was, uh, it was a really special experience and, you know, I just never really wanted to wait all day in line and and do that and, and have to, you know, hold my spot and, um, I, I won the the new lottery system they did, and I almost wasn't going to do it. I was like, <laughs> ah, I don't know if I really want to go in that early and wait. And you know, my my buddy was my buddy Jimmy was like, you, Ian, you got to do it. You're you're number twenty. You're going to be on the rail. Like, trust me, you have no idea. So you know, and I did it, and it was just it was very special. You know, they walked everyone in slowly no running no cutting no darting across you know they had caution tape to make sure it was uh you know keep keeping everyone in line so the run itself was was very special a lot of people probably feel that way just because of how long we had to wait to to have those shows and you know the theatrics that we all experienced on the 22nd and uh it it it, it was just a perfectly choreographed run i thought i agree I, I did a whole recap episode with my buddies from another podcast called Stub Me Down. So I'm going to make my response very brief because anyone who wants to hear my thoughts, you can listen back <laughs> to it. It's like an hour and a half. But I agree with just the overall vibe of what you said. In a strange way, I thought it was a blessing in disguise that it was postponed, at least for the people who it worked out for, the people who could make it. Of course, if I couldn't, I would be singing a different tune. But, <laughs> but I thought it really... It really helped the vibe in that we were already a few months into the new year. Uh, They played the four shows in Mexico just a couple months prior. So now four months into the year, they're playing four more shows. And as of this recording time, certainly it'll already have happened by the time this airs. But as of the recording time, they're only a week away from starting their summer tour. So it's really giving them some momentum. And you're right. The, those four shows at the Garden, they hit the ground running. It was so fun. Uh, if you had a time machine and you could go back to witness any fish moment, whether it's on stage or off stage, where and when would you go? Whew, gosh. Um, yeah, I think it would be the the time machine show on, on New Year's 95. That was just such a great one. What's a venue you'd love to see fish, but you haven't yet had the opportunity to see them there? Um, I've heard really good things about the wolf trap. Is that Virginia? Where is that? Yeah, yeah, in Virginia. I I think there's a lot of venues that I'd love to see them at, but they just are too small for fish. Of course, yeah. Well, let me uh, let me let me adjust the question then. If you could have the magic fingers and you could book fish at any venue and you would be guaranteed a seat. Where would that be, regardless of size? Gosh, that, I would need to think about that one a little <laughs> more, I think. But one that comes to mind where I saw string cheese is Palo Solari Amphitheater in New Mexico, um, which is which is a really cool, unique venue um, and definitely too small for fish. We're talking today about the Fall 97 tour. We're talking about November 26th. What's your favorite show from that tour other than... November 26th. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough because there's just so many great shows that tour. I mean, I want to say my favorite show that tour is all of them. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have to pick one. Um, So, you know, I'll I'll pick November 29th, the, the show they did the runaway gym jam. It was, it was about an hour and I was second row for that. I, I have a really great story. So mail order that year for fall 97 was really kind to me. My birthday was November 26th, the show that we're going to dissect in a minute to make sure that I'd get tickets for my birthday show. 
I did two separate mail orders, which in those days, this wasn't like, this wasn't something that, that everyone did, right? You yeah, didn't very unheady, bro. <laughs> yeah, you didn't do multiple mail orders, you know, and my parents were divorced. So I mailed one to my dad's house and one to my mom's house. One of the orders was just for two tickets to my birthday show. Um, the other order was for two tickets to my birthday show, November 26th, um, and two tickets to the to all three nights of Worcester. And the, the envelopes must have arrived, you know, next to each other, right? And, you know, you're meticulously filling out money orders with each date and each venue and the number of tickets and an index card. And, you know, it's got to be on the right line or your order is going to get rejected. Right. So I was very meticulous about it. The, the, the two envelopes must have arrived together for the Hartford show, November 26th. I had kind of middle of the floor, but the tickets were seats one, two, three, and four in the same row in the same floor section. So it was like, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, we'll just give this guy four seats for his birthday. And then the seats just got better and better and better um, in Worcester. And I was, uh, you know, 18th row, second row and eighth row. Not just because I had great seats, do I pick these shows? Um, they were really special shows. I think the, the jamming, was really reaching some new exploratory, you know, levels. There was a there was a sort of new funk sound that was emerging. Um, it started a little bit maybe in the summer, particularly here on things like the Went Gin, but you know, really that that funk came in the, in the fall. Hey, yeah, and we're going to get into that a little bit deeper uh, in the next <laughs> segment. And I'm excited to do that because like every, almost every fan, Fall 97 is top of my list or depending on the day, you know, it's it's in good rotation at the top of the list. I'll put it that way. Uh, to wrap it up, though, what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, you know, I'd, I'd probably say naked people, but that's probably sort of like a normal thing for a fish show. <laughs> yeah, it's um, not that weird. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've, the, the other thing that seems to be a trend is like dolls and stuffed animals. And like I've seen people with them on a stick, you know, shaking them up in the air. And I've seen people with Barbie dolls like dressed up all weird. And, huh. um, I haven't seen that. I got to go to shows with you. There's like, there's like, uh, there was a monkey traveling around, I think with Trey's daughter for a while. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was a guy I met in Vegas who had like, uh, I met him in Vegas and on the Halloween run, he had a little, it almost looked like a little mini John Fishman puppet huh. with a Viking helmet. And, um, little boxing gloves so he could like box you with the john fishman that oh that's funny yeah so people are like i i feel like stuffed animals and dolls there's like this theme where either people dress them up or do something weird to them and so i feel like that's like the one weird thing that it's not like i just saw it once you know when was this show played Let's dig a little deeper into the Fall 97 tour, which is also known as Fish Destroys America. I don't think I need to bring up too much about it because pretty much anyone listening to this podcast, unless you're a brand new fish fan, knows quite a bit. And I would imagine some of the recordings from it. The Cal Funk gets most of the headlines, I think. When people think 97 or Fall 97, they think, oh, Funk or Cal Funk. But I think what also needs to be touched upon or at least recognized in context was the speed, the tempo of the band, that they were really slow. I was listening to the cities that you brought up for today, and it, it's real slow. It's even slower than how the tempo that they play now sometimes in 2022. It's a different kind of slow. Like now it's a little more, I hate to say it, but a little more old. <laughs> You know, it's like it's for musicians who take their time. But this slow, this version of slow in fall 97, I think they're gaining patience with one another and they're really trying to listen and simultaneously be in the moment and still plan ahead at the same time. Like they're thinking about what are we doing next while they're doing whatever they're doing. Completely. And, the thing and I think I think those tempo changes were very purposeful. 
I think they were challenging each other quite a bit with it, challenging themselves as a whole, as a band to be like, can we do this? And you hear it a lot when, if you really pay attention to some of the sags where they don't just drop, right. They don't just like drop a jam or, or, or a momentum, you know, a crescendo or a sort of momentum that they're, they're going with. They, they just keep playing. And even though it's the wrong tempo or the wrong key, they'll switch to that next song and they'll be sort of playing the next song's bass line in the wrong key. Right. And then, or the wrong tempo and then sort of switch at a, at a more opportune moment. Um, and you kind of hear that in the cities and we, we can get into it in a, in a few minutes. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the segues. I obviously had that thought because of the cities uh, that you just mentioned. I remember when I was getting into fish, I had the farmer's almanac. I think it was volume five. Yep. It was, the, I don't remember if it was the one with the blue or the one with the black cover. I think it was the one with the blue cover, which maybe was volume four. I don't remember, but they were go. They were showing the set lists of the fall 97 tour. And whenever there was a show that had a lot of segues in it, they illustrated a little snake. And in the snake's body, in white print, they had the songs going into each other, and they called it the jam snake. And it didn't really make sense to me at the time. I mean, it did make sense to me at the time, but now when I stop and think about it, it kind of doesn't. Uh, but <laughs> it it really exemplifies just how common it was for them to play the what like what you described that they didn't necessarily plunge from one song to the other. They would start the second song in the beat, like you said, or the tempo of the one they're currently playing. Then on a dime, it was like they all gave each other the secret signal and now they'd be properly into the next song. It's, it's otherworldly. It's like no other band to me, at least at the time could do that. So music aside, where were you and who were you? In November 1997. Yeah, good question. I had to think about that one a little bit. It was my first year of college, actually. So in, you know, spring of 97, I graduated high school. You know, I went to to the Great Went that summer, which was just amazing. And I went to University of Rhode Island for the fall. And, you know, I'd, I'd gotten my first car. I was excited to be able to finally drive to shows on my own without having to like find someone who's going, I could get a ride with and rely, you know? So, you know, I had my first car, you know, I was really excited about that. And I was looking forward to doing my birthday show, um, which was basically on my drive back to Long Island. Well, how many shows did you see on this tour? Just, just four. Yeah. I was very close to, Going to Hampton, I had a I had a ride and an invite, and I would have been like riding five deep in a in a Geo Metro with a bunch <laughs> of hippies from Rhode Island. I almost did it, you know, and they, with no they had no plan, nowhere to sleep, you know. I was just like wing it. I'm like, nah, I'll see them next week. I'm good. I, I mean, I wish I went. You know, I didn't get to Hampton until until 2003. It was my first time at at Hampton, but, um, yeah, you know, it just wasn't in the cards for me at the time. It's so funny listening to your stories. Almost every nineties fish stereotype that I could think of are playing out in real life between the Greenpeace banner in 1994 (laughs) Jones beach. That's like, if you could pin 1994 down in one image to me, that would be it. And then a bunch of hippies in a geo Metro, like without a plan, just Destiny Unbound, right? Get on the road. We'll figure it out later. (laughs) I mean, this is to me, it sounds silly, like I'm teasing it. But at the time, I think a bit younger than you. It was very romantic to me to do something like that. Just like figure it out later, get in the car, see the shows that and then like don't plan too much. And so I'm teasing, but only 10% teasing. I'm really 90% a little jealous. (laughs) So why do you have attendance bias toward this performance? Well, it was my birthday. That was that was a big one. You know, it was dead center on the floor. You know, it was kind of like I had to be there because it was, like I said, it was on the way home to Long Island from, from Rhode Island. 
And then, you know, the drive back was like Worcester wasn't much further. So it was like, this was where I needed to be anyways, you know, what else sort of gives me bias towards this show? I, I think, yeah, I mean the, the 2001, there's some, some really specific jamming that Trey does in this 2001. And I've heard it a little bit in other 2001s, but this one's really just amazing to me. You told me when we were going back and forth that you were just going to re-listen to the whole show anyway, just for the fun of it. What yeah. other big musical highlights are there? Tell oh, us everything God, you like about this so, show. There's so many. I mean, just before the 2001, they started the second set with Character Zero. And, you know, I love Character Zero personally. I know there's a lot of people that don't like that song. Like my <laughs> friend Louie, who I go to see a lot of fish shows with, he hates that song. I'm like, how could you hate character zero? How could you actually hate it? <laughs> I don't know. It just so it just makes me smile. The lyrics are so silly. I want to see the man Mokehi. You know, it's just like what? And and, and that Trey MSG run, that character zero tweezer, character zero blew me away. Oh my god, amazing. But anyway, amazing. so they open the second set with character zero. What else grabbed your attention about this Hartford show? Well, the character zero, I mean, that was a 20 plus minute character zero. I mean, they really explored that one and jammed it out. Um, Punch You in the Eye is one of my favorite fish songs. And that appears later in the set, uh, in the second set. Um, you know, the first set too was really, it, it just started off right out of the gates with tweezer, a 20 minute tweezer. They started out and they're like, okay, guys, let's jam, let's explore. <laughs> Right. And it was very exploratory, a lot of type two jamming. When I first started listening to this and I was I listened specifically to 2001 into cities. But then when I clicked on fish.in and looked at the track list, I wrote played in the second set after a 21 minute character zero opener. And then I wrote, wait, what? <laughs> like, they, they, they've never done that before or since. Yeah. Is that character zero worth giving a, a good long listen to? It really is, especially if you're not a character zero fan, you could skip, you know, the first like eight minutes. <laughs> right. But then it really just, they're just jamming and exploring. And then it's, you know, then they sag into 2001. So it's like, you don't want to miss that sag, right? If you're, if you're trying to really dissect this show and, and, kind of understand what the band was achieving what the band was learning and i think the character zero is really it, it's part of that piece of music right it, it just flows the whole set flows yeah. and the 2001 it segues straight from character zero with raw feedback it's obviously 2001 but in a way that intro was so long it could really be anything i kept looking up at the clock and i'm thinking in my head all right, when are they going to get to the chorus? Not that I was impatient, but I was tense. They build that tension. And I mean it in a really good way. I can imagine myself being at that show, just coming out of my skin, waiting for, you know, the Corotta lights and for, you know, the like that part. And they never get, I mean, they do, but they never get there.
I was literally coming out of my skin going by it. You know, I the the lights it, it definitely came down all the way. It was like pitch black dark at the beginning of that 2001. Yeah, it just it just builds and builds like those for the first two minutes, like you said, there's just that like feedback and you know, fishmen starting the the drum beat. But yeah, it's not until like the three minute mark when like the the crowd, like I, I still get goosebumps when I listen to it every time. The, the crowd just goes nuts. about that about three and a half minutes there's this huge cheer and having not been there i'm just picturing it while listening i imagine that it's one of two things either it's just like an acknowledgement on behalf of the audience that the funk is just so deep and tight and it's everyone's that. just grooving that's what it is okay. it's that it was like at the band and the 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 crowd everyone was just so locked in i mean and not to say that this only happened at this show, but a lot of the shows at this time, I mean, I'd walk out of the show completely drenched and not because like someone spilled water or beer on me, but because I sweated through like two layers of clothing and like just from dancing so hard. Um, and that's how it was. Everyone was just dancing so hard, never pulling out a phone, never, you know, distracted with a thing. It was just, everyone locked in in that moment so yeah the the cheer i don't know if there was glow sticks or if that was when you know corona you know kind of changed the lighting scheme or you know when it went from dark to to brighter or something like that but i just remember it being the 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 crowd just digging the groove being so locked in um then I remember, I remember Trey swaying and shaking and like he was moving around the stage a lot at this point and around like the four minute mark, if you go back and listen, this is, this is when Trey starts into that, like into that riff that I'm talking about. Um, and he really starts, it really, it's, he's starting to really just explore it. I think at around four minutes, um, the four and a half minute mark is where it really progresses into, um, you know, a, a, an organized group of notes.
That's what I wrote. I wrote, it wasn't at four and a half. I just did four fifty. Like, but we're on the same same yeah. page. That it started to get aggressive. That he's picking on the guitar. He's not playing his usual licks, but if he's not doing that, then he's playing rhythm. Like he's very active, even if he's not terribly forward. Because Mike is really the one leading this. You know, Fish and Page are really holding it down. They're not. I mean, Fish is obviously audible. I don't mean it in that way, but it's almost like background white noise where you almost get to the point. He's such a metronome that you take him for granted. Like everything is building on top of him. And that's a crazy skill to be so good that you're almost not noticed. It's like when a movie has really great special effects where if the special effects or the crew does their job, you don't even know that they did a job. I I agree with you there, especially... Because he gets very, you know, robotic with the hi-hat that's tss, 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 and he mm-hmm. keeps coming back to it. Once you get to around, I think it's, it's a little later, around the 10-minute mark, is, is when Fishman really picks up on that riff that, that Trey's laying down and starts to get into some of the, like, start-stop jams and even Fishman reacting with his, with his hi-hat and snare to Trey's little, you know, sentence of notes well it's funny because they spent so much time as a band leading up to this year or early 97 that they would speed chase each other i train fishman in particular and they play at breakneck pace and now becoming much more you know you use the word robotic but and certainly i i think everyone knows what you mean by that even in a more traditional rhythm section like a traditional rhythm band a funk band Trey and Fish still find ways to chase each other, even though they're not really stepping out of the rhythm. You mentioned the 10 minute mark. I just want to put it out there that the first chorus doesn't even come till seven minutes in. That's crazy. That's like half the track. This track is like 14 minutes long. Totally. Yeah. You know, I think this is where they're really starting to explore, right? From, from four minutes to seven minutes, they're all just, they're, they're kind of, and I know that I've heard Trey speak about this in interviews where they kind of pass the baton yeah. right? in terms of like, who's the one improvising versus who's the one sort of sticking to their sentence, if yep. you will, yep. um, you know, kind of four and a half or four fifty till, you know, six or six, six minute and a half mark. They're doing this right. Yep. Just around and around, and around. And it's so, seductive Uh, you're so into it you never want to leave at least i didn't uh you mentioned at 10 minutes that there's this really fun trey riff it's super bad by james brown and trey still does it he did it i I think in mexico i don't think i don't think it's super bad i've listened to super bad and i think think there's one or two notes that's that's off from the super bad so listen back, play it like we can even play it on the show here if you want. But I listened back and I was like, is it super bad? And I was like, I don't know.
to the audience I'll, I'll see if i can find a bat phone to scott marks of fish.net and see can you great. confirm or deny that this is actually yeah. so I'll, we'll see so he really locks into it on the like five minute mark to about 549 trey's like just riffing on that same catchy riff and that's this is where fishman picks up on it like i was saying with the with the snare um and the hi-hat so yeah, let's put a call out there. Who, yep. who can find out what this riff really is? If you want to hear it again, listen back to the 421 show from MSG. This yes, year. yes, um, it's the same riff. So it's the same riff. If you go back and I have the timings for that, I got to find it in my notes here. If you go back and listen to that, you know, around 319, you're at 319 to 348. Yep. Yeah, that was it. 319 through 348. <laughs> um, and then it comes in again at like four minute and 40 second mark. If you're listening to the live fish app version. And, and I got to tell you, man, this is my favorite stuff. I love digging deep. We are the biggest nerds that exist and I can't yeah, get enough. Of it. <laughs> well, and, you know, I used to be a taper. I was a taper from oh. like 98, 98 through like 2012. So you know, I would go to the show and then I would get home and I would play it right away and I'd be listening to it over and over. And then I'd, I'd track it out and I'd upload it. And, you know, I mean, I would be listening to these shows over and over and over. I mean, a dozen times, three days after I just attended the show. I get this feeling and I think this is common to a lot of fish fans that we really love the ritual. You talk so lovingly about filling out the money orders and doing the tickets by mail there's something to the ritual of it that yeah. really become that really uh fulfills the satisfaction of putting in the work and getting something nice out of it that comes through big time uh, so far and my, my well i don't know about my favorite but definitely a touchstone of 97 in this 2001 around 10 and a half minutes there's a full band stop and they do it again. They do it twice. They do it at uh, 10 minutes and then around 11 and a half minutes. And that is 97 in a nutshell. And it's so totally. tight. And that's that's where, again, he Trey's doing that same riff. It's yeah. And then Fishman's yeah. like, and they're all into it. you know by the end of the song they're all just they're just speaking a language to each other that they're just it, i can't even put it into words how amazing it is it's just so right. amazing. well that's um, why the music music exists despite the fact that i'm a host of a podcast sometimes you <laughs> yeah. can't just put it into words uh, i yeah. wrote that at 11 and a half minutes that there's another three three quarters band stop trey keeps playing and Bade supports him I say that this is my favorite stuff, but I say that about so much stuff in 1997. And I had this flashback. If you remember this group, do you remember people for a louder mic PLM? Yep. Yep. They, they did their job. If they're the ones responsible, 
this 2001 is full evidence that Mike granted the people what they wanted. And he was leading this 2001 almost all the way. Oh my God. So much. And it, you know, especially like you said, it felt like 11 and a half to 12 minute or so Mark, like just as they're wrapping it up, Mike is just slapping the bass and just, just so nasty and um, really brings it, brings it back to the, basically to the city's say get like around the 14 minute mark is when they, they really start quoting cities, right? Trey is like playing these really high notes on the top of his fretboard and, and they'd start changing key. Kind of like we were talking about earlier, they'd start changing key and the tempo, but not at the same time. Right. First, yeah, they they're change, very patient. First they change key before they change tempo. They're very patient with it. They don't like botch it by everyone trying to do it all at once. Like you said, uh, Mike kind of starts it. Trey joins in with the rhythm, but Fishman's still doing the 2001. And then I can't picture it, obviously, but I just in my head, I imagine Trey like locking eyes with Fishman saying, all right, on this next go round, the next time we reach the end of the bar, we're going to come around and now we're going to start actually play, actually playing cities. And it, yep. it 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 locks in like they planned it so far ahead, and you know they didn't, which makes it just that much more impressive. There had to be a jam snake for this one. I got to track down some of these editors from the Farmers Almanac, but this <laughs> is an example of the band being like telepathic at this point. And if not, they put on the illusion that they were. Definitely. It's a typical city's groove, but it feels like extra smooth because it's '97, and also the segue from 2001. Like this kind of puts the blue ribbon on it as opposed to just being a good cities. Now it's a great cities. Completely. Yeah. I think this is around the time, like around two forty-five Mark, they start relaxing into the jam of it. The 
interacting with Mike at this point was, was just really smooth and awesome. I'm glad you brought up Mike again, because at five minutes, he was so loud and present throughout this entire sequence. Like he is the lead player, I think. And then around five minutes of cities, he gets softer and lower in volume. He's very smart in his use of dynamics. He is so loud and present. And then he's, he drops out or he goes all the way up and high or quiet. It's like, Oh shit, where did Mike go? And it's, it leaves the rest of the band to figure out what to do now. I mean, I th- and I think this was like to to, to give um, really to just to give space to the rest of the band, you know, to start bringing the the core of the song back around. And within a minute, by around six minutes, the music starts to melt. It's not a direct segue like two thousand one into cities, but the way I felt it is that it was like I was ending one dream in a dream sequence, I was ending one dream that consisted of cities. And then my next dream was starting and it was Yamar. Completely. Was and in. they, yeah, there's no real distinct start to Yamar or end to cities. It's just so flowy at that point that, you know, and this was again, where they're really pushing themselves to make that sag as natural as they could even despite having different tempos or keys or whatever. And I'm not a professional drummer, but I have played the drums. Yamar is a real tough beat, the way Fishman plays it. This like weird calypso. It's almost like uh, Lizards. It has very similar beats where the hi-hat is on the upbeat and it's very difficult. So to go from a pretty straightforward beat like Cities and flawlessly and smoothly transition it into that upbeat Calypso beat of Yamar. I mean, that's genius stuff. That's best drummer ever candidate resume stuff. Agreed. And it seems like everyone would be like, oh, that's such a weird, why would they want to play Yamar there? You know, that should be a first set song, right? Like they actually jammed out Yamar too. (laughs) There's like seven or eight minutes, you know, it's like usually a three or four minute song right like it's there's so much to this show it's so dense now that we're talking about it maybe it'd it'd make more sense next time you come back we could break down the whole goddamn thing (laughs) because (laughs) because just like the set list once we start talking about one song we automatically start talking about the next song it's it's impossible to end one song and call it a closed case because there's whatever's coming next but for now for today Ian, thank you so much 
for coming Thanks down for and breaking me. this down. It was such a pleasure talk, meeting you and talking to you about this. Likewise. Yeah, it was it was really fun for me as well. And, you know, forced me to to really listen back closely to that that 2001, which I, I, I really want to say it's got to be my favorite ever. And that's it for today's conversation with Ian Stone of the Bay Area. But we got to double check our facts and figures with the attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. Ian's first show was at the Jones Beach Amphitheater on July 15th, 1994. They did indeed play, or at least recite, setting sail toward the end of the second set in between Hold Your Head Up. In the big picture, the Jones Beach show is not a very well-known show. It's usually lost in the shadow of the next night at Sugarbush Mountain in Vermont. But I will say the recording of the Jones Beach show on Fish.in is a huge improvement compared to the third-generation tape I had many years ago. I recommend giving this show at least one listen, because it features notable versions of Split Open and Melt, It's Ice, David Bowie, and Reba. There's good reason why I didn't quite remember WDRE, the alternative radio station that Ian said he first heard fish. The station began its life with the call letters WLIR on 92.7 FM. It switched to DRE in 1987 when I was five years old, and back to LIR in 1991 when it became an alternative rock station to keep up with the emerging grunge scene at the time. It continued on WLIR but changed to an easy listening station in 1996. After that, it was just more and more a series of format changes through the years. The station completely signed off in 2011 when it was bought out and changed to a Christian content station called The Voice of Hope. It's really hard to keep up with terrestrial radio call letters while the whole format is in its death rattle. Ian said that his most recent show was, quote, the most recent show for most people, which was the MSG 2022 April run. This episode was recorded in mid-May of 2022, so even though it's airing well past that and Fish has already embarked on a spring and summer tour, his statement held true at the time of this recording. The version of the Farmer's Almanac with the Jam Snakes next to the set lists from Fall 97 was indeed Volume 5. And that's it for today's episode. I'd like to thank Ian Stone for joining me today, Fish.net for their help with the fact check, and Fish.in for the recordings used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show, and you could do that in a number of ways. You could follow Attendance Bias on social media, you could leave a rating and a review of the podcast on any podcast app, and you can especially support the show in its best way by financially supporting the overhead cost at www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendancebias. Every penny helps and goes straight toward operating the podcast. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias.